Get ready to watch more of what you love with Xfinity X1, like live sports and more with the Xfinity Sports Zone. Looking for more streaming apps? They're all in one place. Xfinity X1 is the ultimate entertainment experience. Click, call, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Welcome to Matter in the Land of Oz. Matter in the Land of Oz, South Australia. Woo. Episode two. Part, not part two, not but part episode two. two. Episode two. It's Ellen's turn this week. It's Ellen's turn this week. And oh she's, boy, the teens are excited for it. <laughs> the teens? The teens. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder what our demographics are. I feel How like probably you? not Why did teens. you let us know? Maybe we should do one of those surveys. Um, can I just say big shout out to Amelia J. Dowd, who sent me a message on my Instagram, who said that she asked if I'd had my lips done and I said no, but thank you so much. I think that's the best compliment I've got all day. It's like really brought me out of my Binman syndrome. It's a, it's a good compliment. Not that we advocate, not that plastic surgery is necessarily a positive. But, but you, do, you, know, you, you do, you do. If you want it, do it. Go for it. It's all about choice here in 2019. Exactly right. So, Ellen, what case have you picked for your first South Australian case? I picked It's the most Ellen case case ever. (laughs) It's the Summerton Man. Ooh-wee-oo. This this case, you know, has only been covered by every true crime podcast that's ever existed. Well, we got to jump on board then. We got to jump on board. There's something. There's something about a bandwagon. You know, it's good for a reason. Exactly. Um, I'm like, I was obsessed with this case for like three years when I was like between the ages of like fourteen and seventeen or something like this. I would like stay up at night researching and like looking at stuff on forums and like cool stuff like that. So I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm very excited to get back on the Summerton Man bandwagon and inform people about my opinions about the case. Um, and add absolutely no new information or evidence, apart from the fact that I discovered while researching this episode that I myself have a personal connection to the Summerton Man case. <laughs> did you I would like everybody yourself? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I was so excited when I found out, and I will explain how it happens in context. Right. Um, but I really want everybody to build up their expectations of how I'm related to the Summerton Man case so I can really disappoint them when it comes to the You were there, reveal. but in the future. Future you went back when... I am the Summerton Man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm the Summerton Man. <laughs> you know, like the, the Dark Knight where they're like revealing Batman's identity and then Harvey Dent is like, I'm Batman. <laughs> That's me, that's me, and you're Bruce Wayne standing there being like, what? (laughs) What's going on? Anyway, (laughs) shall I begin? Yeah, do it. Okay, so our story begins on the evening of December, on the evening of November 30th, 1948. So a man named John Lyons was walking along the um, Summerton Park beach, which is located just south of Adelaide in South Australia, and he noticed a man lying on the beach with his head resting against the seawall. So the man raised his right arm and let it drop back down towards his body and John Lyons kind of ignored him. He assumed that he was just like a drunk person having a nap on the beach, which was apparently a fairly common occurrence (laughs) at that particular beach. Um, So he just kept on walking. Another two people, uh, Gordon Straps and Olive Neal, were having a romantic evening at Summerton Beach and they were seated on a bench um, and having a look out over the ocean, and they saw a man's legs jutting out from the seawall, and they commented that he must be dead to the world to be lying so still when there were so many mosquitoes about. The next morning, an apprentice jockey riding his horse on the beach with a friend noticed a man slumped against the seawall. Similarly thinking that it was just a drunk person having a sleep, they rode on, and when they returned, they realised that the man was not in fact sleeping and got off their horses to try and offer some assistance. Um, and John... John Lyons had been having a morning swim at Summerton Beach that morning and he recognised, well, he realised that the person lying there was the same, in the same location as he saw the man the night before and he was like, you know what, this doesn't seem right. So he went up to have a look and realised it was the same man. 
Yeah, and alerted the authorities. So the body was lying um, completely in its, on his back with his feet pointing towards the sea and his head and shoulders propped up against the sea wall. The head was leaning to the right and there was a partly smoked cigarette lying between his right cheek and his right lapel, but neither his cheek nor his lapel were burnt. There were no bruises, blood cuts or anything to indicate that violence had occurred. His clothes were in good condition, but all of the tags had been removed, and in his pockets he had some cigarettes, a box of matches, two hair combs, a packet of gum, an unused railway ticket, and a bus ticket. So the police came, were like, hmm, this is mysterious. Um, a post-mortem examination was undertaken, and it was found that the body was in quite good health, apart from being dead. So his heart was, <laughs> his heart was contracted, um, there was some congestion in his stomach, and his stomach also had some superficial redness and some blood in it, and there was an excessive swelling or congestion of the liver and the spleen. So the Somerton man had eaten prior to his death something like a pie or a pasty, and the blood in his stomach had mixed with the food. Some of his back teeth were missing, and he had no lateral incisors, which are the teeth next to your middle teeth. Um, and initially the medical examiner assumed that the cause of death was heart failure, but being unable to find anything that caused the heart failure, he concluded that the cause of death was unnatural. And this was backed up by some other doctors that um, had a look at his findings and reviewed the body. So it was assumed that the death was caused by some form of poison, even though there was none found in his system, and no evidence on the body like vomit or anything to indicate that he'd been poisoned. Um, and both the police and the medical examiner were unsure if he had been poisoned, whether it was um, murder or suicide. Why look you on grinning? your face... I'm just loving looking at you talking about this case, you big nerd. <laughs> it's interesting. Thank you. So oh. You're such a little Muppet. I'm not a Muppet. You Me are. Alone. You're a Muppet. It's just interesting. I know. It's just interesting. I'm just happy that you're happy talking about this. Thank you. I just think you're cute, that's all. Thank you. You're so sweet to me. So um, a man by the name of E.C. Johnson had recently gone missing and he was the person who was first put in police reports about um, possibly being the Summerton man. So the newspaper The Advocate um, reported that it was likely to be him, but on the 3rd of December, Johnson walked into the police station and was like, Yo. Yo, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, guys, wasn't me. Um, really hope this doesn't turn into a 50-year-old mystery for you guys. <laughs> so sorry. See you later. Um, some other people were considered, uh, including a military man who had been seen drinking in a Glenelg pub on November 30th, and then I assume not seen again, um, and a man named Robert Walsh, who somebody identified as the Somerton man. A woman named Elizabeth Thompson was like, that's my associate, Robert Walsh. Um, but then she had to retract, she ended up retracting her statement. Um, Robert was 63 and a woodcutter. Um, and the Somerton man was in his 40s and it was noted that his hands were really soft and had no signs of manual labour, so it wasn't likely that he was a woodcutter. Nah. So in early January of 1949, additional detectives were assigned to the case. Uh, Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean and Police Detective Len Brown. On the 14th of January, the police, following clues from the unused train ticket in the man's pocket, investigated the Adelaide train station and found that a suitcase had been deposited there on the 30th of November and not picked up. So the contents of the suitcase, this is long. <laughs> Everybody get a snack. So the contents of the suitcase were a dressing gown and cord, one laundry bag with the name Keen printed on it, one pair of scissors in a sheath, one knife in a sheath, one stencil brush, two singlets, two pairs of underpants, in brackets, jockey type, four ties... <laughs> One of which bared the name T. Keen, one pair of slippers, two pairs of underwear, in brackets, ordinary type, one pair of trousers bearing dry cleaning marks, one sport coat, one coat shirt, one pair of pajamas, one yellow coat shirt, one singlet bearing the name Keen with no E, one other singlet with the name torn out, one shirt with the name tag gone, six handkerchiefs, one piece of light board, I have no idea what that is, uh, eight large and one small envelope, Two coat hangers, one razor strop, one cigarette lighter, one razor, one shaving brush, one small screwdriver, six pencils, um, six pence in change, one toothbrush and paste, one glass dish, one soap dish containing one hairpin, uh, three safety pins, one front and one back collar stud, one brown button, one teaspoon, one pair of broken scissors, 
one card of tan thread, one tin of tan boot polish, two airmail stickers, one scarf, and one towel. That is the suitcase of a busy man. That is the suitcase of somebody who is like, you know what I'm going to be today? A mystery. (laughs) (laughs) The contents... The contents... childhood playing like mystery games online where you would like be in a room and you would have to like uncover the clues that would like get you out of the room it was like an escape room essentially but online for like people that didn't have friends and (laughs) everything the contents of his suitcase reminded me of when you would play those games and you would be like why would any why would anybody have these random assortment of items but it would be because you would need to use like the broken scissors to like open a lock to get the key to like solve the thing it's like escape room clues, you know what I mean? It's just nonsensical yep. randomness. Oh, so funny. So the clothes in the suitcase, like the clothes on the body, had all of the name and brand tags cut out. Um, and it was the opinion of a tailor who was consulted that the suit jackets were made in America because they had stitching on them that was only um, able to be done with sewing machines that were made in America at that time. So whatever, like, high-tech sewing machine technology they had in America in 1948 had not yet come to Australia. Those bloody yanks. Yeah, it was probably still 10 years away knowing Australia. Um, And there were some items that you would think would be in the suitcase that weren't missing, that weren't there, like, for example, socks. He had no socks with him, apart from the ones that he was wearing when he died. Um, He had no pens. He had, like, six pencils and everything like that and all these, like, letter-writing equipment, but he had no pens. So... Mm not really that usual to write letters in pencil at the time. Um, he had no hat. Oh, <gasps> you know. I know. But it was it was, it was was important <laughs> enough that, like, John Lyons, when he saw the body lying there, when he spoke to the police, he was like, yes, the man had no hat. So How dare he? Yeah, but it was 1940, so, like, men wore hats, you know. No, I know, I know. That is quite scandalous. Uh, yeah, and apart from the It's six, like a lady without a hanky or something. <gasps> like a lady showing an ankle. Um, what? Scandalous. Uh, and apart from the sixpence that was found in a trouser pocket, he had no money or, like, identification or a wallet or anything that a normal person would have. Um, I feel that. So the reason why they could link the suitcase to the Summerton man, other than the fact that obviously the mystery suitcase belongs to the mystery dead guy, uh, was that the stitching... He had mended a hole in his pocket in the uh, pants that he was wearing when he died with a a thread that was like a weird orange like sepia tone that was found in the suitcase as well. So they were like they they matched the threads basically. I believe they said so they were microscopically microscopically similar and they matched the two threads. And they also noted <laughs> they noted in the inquest, which I thought was funny, um, that he'd mended the pocket and they said it was a rather masculine mending, which I took to mean <laughs> That was quite shit. I think it probably means that it was a bit shit. Um <laughs> So the the jockey underpants were similar to what the dead man was wearing, the handkerchiefs were similar, and the clothes were of a similar size, so they were pretty content that it was the Summerton Man's suitcase. Also, assumedly, nobody was like, where's my suitcase of assorted items? (laughs) Where's my dish with the pin in it? Where is my one soap dish with my one hairpin? I need that. I need it. And my broken scissors. And my my one pair of functional scissors in a sheath and my one pair of broken scissors. They're, they have sentimental value. And my brown value. button. And my one brown button. I need it. <laughs> They're my things. Anyway, so the, the quality of the clothing, both on the body and in the suitcase, was like medium. So they weren't super high quality, but nor were they like totally povo. Um, and same with the brands of cigarettes and matches. So they weren't necessarily like the most expensive brand, but they also weren't, you know, the cheap shit. So all of these discoveries seemed to create more questions than they answered. Um, and there was nothing giving, there was nothing in the suitcase that gave any clues to the Summerton man's identity other than the name Keen, which was not super helpful, A, because Keen is a pretty common last name, and B, because Keen was written on a couple of the items, but one of them, it had no E, it looked like the E had washed off. And I said one of them, uh, one of the tie had T Keen written on the back, but the T didn't really look like a T, it was just like a line. So I think they investigated a whole bunch of T-keens, but nobody was dead, so that was a... No bueno. That was a dead end. 
So the city coroner, um, Thomas Erksine Cleland, had a bit of a job on his hands when an inquest into the death was called. I hope I'm saying Erksine right. I've never read that word before. <laughs> <laughs> we know what I'm like with pronunciation. It's not my strong suit. We, we know what we both like with, when it comes to pronunciation. We're always just like, oh, should we do research into these words that we've never said out loud before? Nah. Nah. Um, so he asked for assistance from his cousin, who is a man named Sir John Cleland. And John Cleland was a microbiologist, an ornithologist, a mycologist, and also the professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide. So smart boy. Yeah, so, you know, just a couple of hobbies. Um, so he re-examined the Somerton man's body in June of 1949, and he found a curious item. Inside a difficult-to-find fob pocket on the Somerton man's trousers was a tightly rolled-up piece of paper that Cleland needed tweezers to extract. The paper bore the words, to ma'am, should. So if you have heard of this, it's either called the Somerton Man, ca- the Somerton man case or the to ma'am, should, or to ma'am, should case. Yeah. So yeah, the yeah, phrase yeah. is, yeah, yeah, just, you know, yeah, if there's any person that hasn't heard of this case, which I don't yeah. believe is statistically possible, just letting them know. <laughs> so the phrase is Persian and it translates to ended, finished, or the end. It was cut from a book of poetry called the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. I googled how to pronounce those. Which is a <laughs> book of 12th century Persian poetry, which was apparently incredibly common and very a, a popular read in Australia in the 1940s at the time. So the police put out a nationwide search for the copy of the Rubaiyat that the note had come from, which proved to be difficult because while people had copies, not many people had the edition specifically that this was cut from. Mm. Um, information was placed in the advertiser on the 9th of June, 1949, asking anybody with a copy of the book to come forward. On the 14th of June, the Somerton man was laid to rest. He was buried at West Terrace Cemetery, and unsurprisingly, his funeral was sparsely attended. The service was conducted by Captain E.J. Webb from the Salvation Army, and a cross was placed over the grave bearing the words, Unknown Man. Details about the funeral had been kept under wraps to prevent people from kind of coming and causing a scene or treating it like entertainment basically because the the case had it was quite popular in Adelaide especially um and they didn't want it to kind of become you know a spectacle which I respect although I kind of wish there was people there to more people there to say goodbye to him I think only like four people were there just so knew that he mattered yeah exactly um so the coronial inquest will you come to my funeral Ellen sorry will you come to my funeral yes you're not allowed (laughs) to die first um, what? I said, you're not allowed to die first. You're, I have I'm, to die first. No, no. Uh-uh, I'm dying first. Mm, I don't know about that. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm not. No. We'll chat about well, this you, later. You're older than me, so you probably will die first. Um, um, no, I won't. And I refuse to die. I refuse to not die first because I have to. No. I'm sorry. You've left me for Adelaide and for, for Hobart. <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, keep going. I'm really upset now. Goodbye. Okay. So the coronial inquest began on June 17th, 1949. A number of witnesses were called and they were questioned by both Thomas Cleland, the coroner, and John Cleland, the pathologist. Um, I think if I say Cleland, I mean John. I don't think I talk about Thomas that much. So um, among those that gave evidence were John Lyons, who saw the body first on November 30th and contacted the police the next day. Um, the jockey who also saw the body on December 1st, John Moss, who was the police officer who first attended the scene, the bus conductor that, who drove the bus the Somerton man would have taken to the beach, and a man named Paul Lawson, who was the taxidermist who had made a bust of the Somerton man's corpse. Um, Lawson noticed, noted that his feet were striking, which is not really a phrase you want used to refer to your feet. No. Um, and that it seemed like Somerton Man had worn high-heeled or pointed shoes as his calf muscles were high and well-developed, almost like a woman's. He also noticed that his feet were, like, wedge-shaped. Um, Dr Dwyer, who conducted the post-mortem examination, was called, and he gave most of the evidence that I already gave. Um, Dr Dwyer was of the opinion that there was no way the death could have been natural due to the contraction of the heart. So it was like the heart had literally just stopped beating. Um, Dwyer supposed that the cause of the death was heart failure, as I said, but could not pinpoint what precisely had caused the failure. If the Summerton man had been poisoned, Dr. Dwyer thought it was possible that it was some kind of super fast acting barbiturate that would not leave a trace in the autopsy. But this wasn't super likely because it would have to be like a perfectly measured amount of barbiturates to 
kill him in the time frame and also leave no trace. So if you if you gave somebody like a small but still fatal dose of barbiturates, it would take a really long time for them to die. And if you gave them a large dose of barbiturates, they would die really quickly. So he wouldn't have time to go to the beach and lie down and be lying there dying for a few hours. So yeah, it wasn't it wasn't logical that somebody would measure out like exactly the amount of barbiturates needed for him to die in the way that he did. Um, a chemist, Dr. Robert Cowan, concluded that no common poisons were found in the Somerton man's body, and in his opinion, if he was poisoned, it was by some incredibly rare poison not commonly used for suicides or homicides. Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean was called and gave evidence about the curious contents of the suitcase and how it was determined that it belonged to the Somerton man, which I've already gone over. He also stated that the description, the fingerprints and the photographs of the man had been circulated all around Australia and New Zealand and all the English-speaking countries of the world with no credible matches. He also stated that there was no evidence for him that pointed towards suicide and away from murder. So other people were pretty convinced that it was a suicide, but Lionel Lean was still like, look, it goes either way. He said that he, he believed it was possible that the words to mom should could have been placed in the Summerton man's pocket by the person that murdered him. So he discounted that as evidence pointing towards suicide. Then John Cleland was called. Um, his evidence was similar to what the other examiners had given. He made the discovery. He gave additional information about a piece of barley grass that was in the trouser leg of one of the pairs of trousers that was in the suitcase and also in on the socks that he was wearing at the time. So you know that long grass that you put in your mouth if you're pretending to be a farmer? That stuff. Yep. <laughs> um, so that, but it, it didn't really lead anywhere because that farmer grass is everywhere. So he said that the Summerton man was clean and well taken care of, unlike other mystery people that he had observed in his time, and that his shoes were quite clean and looked like they'd been polished perhaps that day, and that they didn't have as much sand on them that they didn't have enough sand on them to indicate that he'd been wandering around the beach all day. Right. Um, he said that he had determined that the cause of death was unnatural before he found the paper bearing the words to mom should in the pocket, but the paper reinforced that belief. He believed that the death was a suicide and the paper was something like a suicide note. He agreed with the findings of the po- post-mortem examination that there was nothing to indicate a natural death and that something like a death from a vagal inhibition which is when your heart stops, um, would fit their symptoms but would happen too suddenly again for the man to be lying there and be seen to be alive for a few hours before he died. Um, he thought that the man it's possible that the man could have taken something to induce suicide that made him drowsy and that perhaps he'd planned to die further along the beach somewhere but was forced to stop and lie against the seawall near the steps, which is not really a... not the most secluded place to kill yourself. No. Um, so the inquest concluded with the coroner, Thomas Cleland, determining that the evidence was too inconclusive to uh, warrant a finding. There was no evidence to the deceased's identity. He could not determine with full certainty where precisely he had died, um, in that if he was murdered, he could have been placed there. He couldn't determine with 100% certainty where he was when he died, and that he would be prepared to find that he died from poisoning and that the poison was not accidental, but he could not determine if it was administered by the deceased or by some other person. So the inquest was adjourned. So after the inquest finished, uh, on July 22, 1949, a chemist called John Freeman came forward with a copy of the Rubaiyat. He, had re- he recalled that his brother-in-law was reading a copy of the book a few months previously. So they were both sitting in the car, in John Freeman's car. He noticed his brother-in-law was reading this book, and then he put the book into the glove box of Freeman's car. Freeman contacted. Uh, Freeman went into the car to look for the book and noticed that it had a re- rectangular-shaped tear on the last page. Freeman contacted his brother-in-law to see where he'd gotten the book from, but the brother-in-law told Freeman that he had found it in the back seat of Freeman's car. So he'd like lean over the back seat, found the book, had a look at it, put it in the glove box. So the book had allegedly been thrown in the back of Freeman's car when it had been parked on Jetty Road, only a kilometre or so from where the Somerton man was found on the 30th of November. Freeman sub- subsequently handed it into police. So in the back, like the flyleaf of the Rubaiyat, either in the either in indentation or in very faint pencil markings, was a phone number and a series of letters that appeared to form some type of code. So the code consisted of five lines of seemingly random letters with the second line crossed out. The paper was forensically analysed and determined to be a match to the paper found in the Somerton man's pocket. 
The code was then sent to the Army headquarters in Melbourne to be decrypted, and a series of Australia's top code breakers uh, tried for a month and failed to decipher the code. They could determine that due to the frequency of the occurrence of certain letters, it indicated that it was a code written in English, and it was possibly the first letters of lines of poetry, although I assume they cross-referenced and determined that it wasn't from the Rubaiyat. So that line of inquiry kind of died there. The phone number was a little more fruitful. So it was traced to the home of a woman by the name of Jo Thompson. So this lady, she was born Jessie Ellen Harkness. I know. That is both of our names. Our names. Sort of. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Um, in 1921, but she also went by Jessica, Jess, Justin, and Joe. I'm going to call her Joe because it's the shortest. She, <laughs> she was a former nursing student, and she lived at Mosley Street, Glenelg, around 800 metres away from where the Summerton man was found, with a man named Prosper Thompson and her one-and-a-half-year-old son. Prosper. Prosper. Don't you love those names from the day that were just like Like Jessie Ellen and Prosper. And Prosper. Exactly. So when the police spoke to her, she claimed not to know the Summerton man, but she did know about the Rubaiyat. She told the police that, um, the police were like, what do you think the Rubaiyat is? And she was like, oh, it's a book of love poetry. And that she had given a copy of it to an army lieutenant named Alf Boxall in Sydney in 1945 before he went on active duty. She claimed to have no idea how her phone number came to be in the back of the unknown man's book. She did tell police that around the time in 1948... Her neighbours told her that there was somebody knocking on her door and they'd, he'd come and asked about the nurse that lived in the house. Um, she was shown uh, the bust of the Summerton man that was made by the taxidermist Paul Lawson and she apparently only glanced at it briefly. fucked. Sorry? The bust is fucked. It's a bit freaky looking. It's a bit freaky looking. I'm not sure I could conclusively, you know... Be like, that's a human being. Um, so apparently she only she only glanced at the bust for a second before averting her eyes, and she looked at the floor for the rest of the duration of the interview. To the detectives, um, she, she started to seem kind of faint, and it seemed to the detective that she was reacting ne- negatively because she did recognise the man. She was asked if it was Alf Boxall, and she could not conclusively identify if it was or was not, um, but Alf Boxall was later located, and he still had the copy of the Rubaiyat given to him by Joe. Um, that had, in the front, it had some lines of one of the poems that she'd written and signed Jestin, which was one of her many names, um, and it's it was intact. It didn't have anything ripped out in the back. So who was Joe Thompson? So she was born, as I said, in 1921 in Sydney. She moved to Menton in Melbourne at a young age, and it was here that she met Prosper Thompson for the first time. She worked as an orderly in a hospital for a while before she moved back to Sydney to study nursing and worked at the North Shore Hospital. This was during World War II, and it was at this time in 1945 that she met Alf Boxall and gave him the copy of the Rubaiyat. Jo became pregnant in October of 1946, and she never got to finish her nursing exams. She moved back to Melbourne to stay with family during her pregnancy for a short time and crossed paths again with Prosper Thompson. Shortly after, she moved with Prosper to Adelaide in the early months of 1947. Jo changed her last name from Harkness to Thompson, and she and Prosper lived as a married couple, despite the fact that Prosper was still technically married to his first wife. In July of 1947, Jo gave birth to a son, Robin McMahon Thompson. Prosper was listed as Robin's father on the birth certificate, and he acted as Robin's father. But Prosper and Joe's relationship was a little bit unconventional. It was basically a marriage of convenience. Um, Prosper was known to like have other girlfriends and stuff like that, and he had two houses. So Joe kind of stayed in one with the kid, and he would like hang out in town with the ladies, I guess. Um, but he and Joe did get married in 1950, and they did have another daughter together. So Joe was the best link to finding out the Summerton man's identity, but her apparent denial about knowing him and the inability of the best code breakers in a country to ca- crack the code meant that the trail went cold. A second inquest was held in 1958, but no new evidence appeared to be uncovered, and the connection between Joe, the Rubaiyat, and the Summerton man appeared to not be mentioned. Over time, evidence from the case was destroyed, witnesses died, and although there was still interest in the case, especially locally, the cases still remained unsolved to this day but I am nowhere near finished this episode. <laughs> so the the story of the Summerton Man has really exploded in popularity since the advent of the internet. Um, and the theories Ooh, about who he was that? are like crazy. So 
basically, you know, there's two parts to the mystery. There is how and why did the Summerton man die and who the fuck was he in the first place? And most people think that, you know, what's the logical conclusion if a mystery man with, like, no labels in his clothes or anything like that comes to town, he's got a book full of clothes, who could he possibly be but a spy? (laughs) Yeah, obviously. (laughs) Everybody's like, he's a spy. There's a guy, oh, mystery man with codes, it's a spy. Um, Guy with a brown button? Just one brown button. Everybody knows that's the international spy secret code. (laughs) Just leave one brown button in the suitcase, they'll never know. They'll Um, never know. So, yeah, so even though the code wasn't linked to any known World War II codes, that doesn't mean that it wasn't, you know, some secret military code or something like that. Um, And, yeah, so it just makes sense. If he's some spy on, like, some mission to do something or other, all of the weird stuff, like all the random stuff, and not having any identification and removing all the labels from his clothes starts to make sense. Um, And also things like the fact that he bought a train ticket that he didn't use if he thought somebody was following him or something like that, like, what a good way to, like, go into, like, the train station and be like, oh, yes, sir, I will have a ticket to this location, but actually go on a bus somewhere else. It's like Spy 101. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) And being a spy also kind of helps out with the whole That's what they teach you day one of spy school. Yeah, that's like you go to like Quantico or whatever and they're like, okay, number one, here's your brown button. (laughs) Number two, (laughs) if you're ever being followed, just loudly declare what location you're going to and then go somewhere else. They'll never see it coming. Um, But it also kind of helps out with the whole poison situation because, you know, if everybody was like, well, he had to have been killed by some high-grade poison that we've never heard of before, like who would have access to high-grade poisons? that no common chemist would have ever seen before, the military or some intelligent agency. So, and also, like, it's the end of World War Two. World War Two's been over for a little while now. The Cold War's just kicking off. Everybody's like, hey, I'm terrified about the threat of nuclear war. What should we do? And the answer was, of course, spy on everybody all the time. So yeah. it, kind of, it kind of works out. It also... Um, solved some problem with the fact that he was probably not from Australia. As I said before, the stitching on his coat seemed to indicate that it was made in America. Um, The tie that he was wearing on the day that he died, it was a striped tie. And apparently, Americans stripe their diagonally striped ties from the right shoulder down to the left. And British people direct it from the left shoulder down to the right. And his was... Jess is just making fun of me. So his no, tie was striped I, right no, to left. I'm laughing because <laughs> when you said right to left, I touched my left shoulder and went down right. And then when you said oh, left to right, I touched my right. Oh, good. We're just both stupid. That's fine then. <gasps> um, so he's wearing an American striped tie and the al- aluminium comb he had in his pocket um, was also a product that was only available in America at the time. So he's probably American. Um But what would a spy be doing in Adelaide, which is not necessarily the espionage capital of the world? Uh, A place called the Woomera Range. Have you ever heard of this place? Woomera. Yeah. The Woomera Range, not just Woomera specifically. It's it's ringing a bell. It's ringing a bell. It's also known as the Woomera Prohibited Area. And it is like a government... I have heard of it before. Weapons testing facility. What? But it's like Australia spies. Area Fifty One, isn't it? So like, it's just a weapons testing facility, but is also obviously where they keep all the aliens and shit. Obviously, so, Woomera is about five hundred kilometers away from Adelaide, which kind of you know puts some holes in the theory. But I think it's totally possible that if he was a spy, he lands, he goes to Adelaide, he checks in his suitcase, he's like, I'm just gonna check out the town, and then after that, off to Woomera to spy. There is another theory. That he is something even more nefarious than a spy. A, a ballet man. dancer. <laughs> I hope so. Because his carbs are developed. I hope so. Exactly. Thank you. Now I don't have to read out the sentence on this wrote. Exactly. So a number of the physicians commented on how muscular his calves were. I keep on like gesturing like this when I say muscular. Like grasping. And by she means like she's like... It looks like, like she's holding two tiny peaches. 
I'm holding a tiny peach. That means muscles in my mind. So, yeah, a lot of people commented um, on that he was quite muscly up top. He had, like, that upside-down Dorito body, like, broad shoulders, like, uh, quite muscular up top, thinner waist and hips. That could indicate a swimmer, though. Okay, well, I don't have any evidence about him being a swimmer yet. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's okay. So, another piece of evidence to him being a ballet dancer ties back to Joe Thompson. So, as I said, Joe Thompson had a son named Robin. One day when Robin was quite young, Joe took him completely randomly. They'd never talked about ballet classes before or anything like that, but she randomly took Robin to a ballet lesson, which isn't super usual for, like, a boy in that time, for their mum to be like, okay, now you would be ballet dancer. She wasn't Russian. I don't know dancer. why. <laughs> I, didn't, I don't know why I didn't like that. Um, and he loved it. He loved it. He was a fantastic dancer. He studied ballet all throughout his youth and actually went on to become a dancer in the Australian ballet. Good for him. Yeah. So in March of 2009, this man named Professor Derek Abbott, um, he'd been investigating the Summerton man like on his own time for a couple of years, but he started this project with a group of university students um, to attempt to decipher the Summerton man's code, which obviously they didn't do because it's still a mystery. So rough. Um, (laughs) And so when they were doing all this investigation, he also found out some interesting features physical features of the Summerton man that hadn't really been noted before. So please imagine, if you will, the human ear. So, <laughs> so I just almost <laughs> I choked. Woof. Oh my God. Please imagine, if you will, the human ear. That is my favorite sentence of the day. Are you okay? imagining yes. an ear? I am imagining an ear. So you know how you have like two hollow bits in your ear? Yeah. There's, like, two two little, like, circles inside your ear. So the yeah. upper hollow is called the simba, and the lower hollow, we're both touching our ears, is called the cavum. Yeah. So the majority of the world um, have a smaller simba, or upper hollow, than they do the cavum. But the Summerton man had a larger upper hollow. Oh, no. He also had uh, another interesting feature that I mentioned earlier. He had, he had something called hypodontia, which meant they had less teeth than normal, and he was lacking his lateral incisors, as I said. Um, so only 1.2% of the Caucasian population have a larger simba than caven, and only 2% of the population have hypodontia. And the Summerton man had both, and so did Robin Thompson. Ooh. Exactly. So... Derek Abbott located a picture of Robin that clearly showed the features of his ears, and it was easy to see. When you do see photos of him, he has very pronounced canine teeth. Um, So it was very easy to tell that he had both of these features. No photographs remain of the Summerton man's teeth, but it was pointed out in the post-mortem that he was missing his lateral incisors. Um, And while it's possible that they could have fallen out or, you know, been damaged or something like that, the the post-mortem examiner made the point that because he was also missing quite a few of his back teeth, the postmortem examiner pointed out that if he was speaking, you wouldn't be able to tell that he was missing any teeth. So, mm. Robin Thompson, uh, yeah, so it's possible, it's, it's a maybe. It's not like 100% confirmed, unless you look at his teeth, if he had just lost his lateral incisors at some point, or if he was born without them, but they're pretty sure that he was born without them. So Robin Thompson had died in 2009, so Abbott couldn't talk to him directly, but he did write a letter to a woman named Roma Egan, who was Robin, Th- Robin Thompson's ex-wife and my former ballet teacher. I'm so sorry. I did ballet with Miss Roma for like 10 years. You're joking, mate. I am not joking. I am not joking. So when I was Googling this Oh, my case, God, I've just found a photo of her. She's so pretty. She's so pretty. She was also a very, very good teacher. Um, when I was, like, like doing this research for this case, I, like, saw... I can't remember what TV show it was. Maybe Inside Story or something like that. They did an Inside Story about this case. And I saw her face and I saw the name Roma. And then I didn't put two and two together until I was reading later on and they started talking about ballet and everything. And I'd already knew about the ballet dancing connection. I'd already knew about Robin Thompson and all of that being a ballet dancer. But I just never made the connection. And then I saw her photo and I was like, oh, my God, I have known this woman for like years. I stopped doing ballet when I was like 13, but I started when I was like three. So she was right there in front of me this whole time. Wild. Wild. 
literally my face, like, eyes the size of dinner plates. Anyway, oh. but it's not about me, unfortunately. So, Derek wrote a letter to my own... I'm going to really struggle not to call her Miss Roma. He wrote a letter to Roma and enclosed a photo of the Summerton man and was like, does this look like any ballet dancer? She was like a principal dancer at the Australian Ballet, so she would know a lot about all the ballerinas in operation at the time. Um, in operation? In operation. Uh, so she, he enclosed a photo, was like, do you recognise this ballet dancer? And she said that it looked like it resembled her ex-husband, Robin. And she also said that Robin's mother, Jo, was a woman who had many secrets. <gasps> Ooh. Yes, Mysterious. So Roma agreed with Abbott that it was likely that the well that the resemblance was strong that it was possible that the Summerton man was Robin's father, and she assisted she and her yeah she assisted um, Derek in his attempts to try and get the body exhumed. So he'd been petitioning the government for a while to get an exhumation so he could get some DNA from the the body, or mm. probably have a look at his teeth. So Derek went to interview Roma in person, and there he met her daughter, Rachel, and they fell in love and got married. Y'all, cute. I know. What a beautiful love story. Oh like my this man, God. like, I know. How sweet. Um, See, so you guys, good things do happen. Guys. So DNA was taken from both Rachel and Roma, and they, they like, a limited eliminated Roma's DNA profile from Rachel's to have a look at the DNA that was left, that would be left over from Rachel's, like, paternal line. So, Robin Thompson's DNA, essentially. And, um, this DNA was used by forensic genealogist, uh, Colleen Fitzpatrick, who has done just every case that you read that's like, this case was solved with forensic genealogy. It was Colleen Fitzpatrick. She does all that shit. Every, like, well-known case you've heard of, she's worked on. So, she, she took a look at the DNA and it made some interesting discoveries. So her paternal DNA indicated, led back to the east coast of the United States and matched with some relatives of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. What? So if Rachel's grandfather is the Summerton man, that leads more weight to the whole American connection. Um, and if he's not, well, it's a pretty cool fact. Be <laughs> <laughs> like, well, did you know that I'm related to... Slave owner Thomas Jefferson. Just drop that in casual conversation. Featured in the musical Hamilton. Yes, everything I know about Thomas Jefferson, I only know from Hamilton. I'm sorry. Um, so as I said, Abbott has unsuccessfully petitioned the South Australian government for an exhumation quite a few times, but has it's been denied because it wasn't seen to be in the public interest. But the current Attorney General, general Vicky Chapman, has conditionally agreed to an exhumation if somebody can pony up the cash, which is expected to be around $20,000. In the meantime, um, some hair with some viable DNA has been extracted from the plaster cast that was made of the Summerton Man's corpse back in the day, um, which apparently can be tested. So Abbott and also another... Um, laboratory is in the process of trying to get a workable DNA profile from that hair. I don't know a lot about DNA, but it seems a little bit tricky to me. <laughs> I don't I don't know what the issues are That's another about one taking for the t-shirt Zane. I don't know a lot about DNA. But I think that's a bit tricky. <laughs> there's got to be some some serious complications in taking a hair out of a plaster cast of a dead person from 50 years ago and trying to get a usable DNA pro profile. It seems unlikely. It seems unlikely. So those are the theories as to who the Summerton man was. Now we're going to talk about some theories about how he died and then the episode will finish. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't that funny, but thank you. I love you. Thank you. I love you too. I thought that was very funny. Okay. So murder is one option. So some some theory that gets floated around the internet a bit is that he was killed via poison cigarette. If you'll recall, Ugh. he had a cigarette lying on his right lapel um, that had been half smoked. Were they quite... Were they around? <laughs> what? that a thing? Poison cigarettes. Um, I think there was an Agatha Christie where somebody died in a poison with a poison cigarette. Um, it's not, it's not necessarily the easiest way to kill somebody, uh, especially because like in 1948 everybody smoked a lot. So if you like slipped a cigarette, 
a poison cigarette into somebody's cigarette case or whatever. And then somebody is like, hey, man, bummer smoke. You could easily kill the wrong person. But he, he did have something weird with uh, his cigarettes in that the packet he, of cigarettes he had was called, uh, it was an Army Club brand cigarette, but the actual mm. cigarettes were a different brand. So people Ooh. were like, maybe somebody put them in. Or, but also maybe <laughs> he was just like, oh, no, I've, I've ruined this packet. I'll just put the cigarettes in my old packet or something like that. Um, so possible. Next option. Possible. Next option is poisoning, which we've discussed. Yep. Several times. One poison that is floated is a poison called digitalis. So digitalis is derived from the foxglove plant and metabolizes pretty quickly after death. So it would be untraceable after a certain amount of time. So in 1994, a man named John Harbour Phillips, who was then the Chief Justice of Victoria, reviewed the evidence of the case and determined that the Somerton man had indeed died of digitalis poisoning. So uh, digitalis is, uh, I don't know if it's the, the sole ingredient or if there are other ingredients in a drug called di... Fuck, I should have Googled how to pronounce this. Dijoxin? <laughs> Digoxin. A drug that is used to treat heart problems. So it's, it's easy to access. Um, but if it's taken in excess, it can cause fatal arrhythmias. So on an autopsy, um, fatal digitalis toxicity... Evidence of fatal digitalis toxicity includes congestion of the stomach, brain, lungs, and kidneys, but not necessarily anything clear in the heart, um, according to the one autopsy that I could find of somebody else who died of digitalis poisoning anyway. It's not a very common way to kill somebody, which fits in with their theory that if it was poison, it would be with an uncommon poison. Um, but it was possibly used to murder a man named Harry Dexter White, who is a former U.S. Treasury official who was accused of being a communist spy um, in August of 1948, so just a couple of months before the Somerton man died. He was accused of being a communist spy. He was like, I am not a communist. Then he had a series of heart attacks and died, and his cause of death was put down as an overdose of dijoxin. Fuck. Um... So he did have a heart condition, and as, as I said, it's a heart medication, so it's possible that he just took an accidental overdose, but other people were like, nah, he's a communist spy and he was murdered. So if you believe that Harry Dexter White was a communist spy who was murdered, it's not necessarily a huge leap to assume that the Summon Tin Man, who's also a communist spy who was murdered... It all comes back to the communists. You know, everything it? comes back to communists. People also thought that Joe Thompson was a communist because um, apparently she talk, taught English to Russian people and she was a bit left wing so people online have have taken that to mean that she was obviously a filthy commie and she hates freedom obviously (laughs) so i didn't put that in anything that i wrote because i thought it was mean and not very true so obviously there are some issues with murder as this possible (laughs) in general and also as a cause of death for the summerton man um for a number of reasons i think because, obviously, if it was a poisoning, like, somebody would have had to have somehow poisoned him in a way that was completely untraceable. They would have had to put his body at the beach somehow, unless they poisoned him with an amount of poison that would make him die eventually. And the Summerton man was just like, I'm just going to wander down to the beach and die quietly instead of, you know, finding a police officer or a doctor or something. All right. So, <laughs> you know, which was really polite of him if he, you know... Really handy, Very. handy for the murderer. Um, another possible, the other obvious cause of death is suicide. Um, he could still have used the digitalis to commit suicide, um, which makes more sense than if he was murdered, but still, you know, not 100%. Um, but the Summerton Man's sui- death actually matched a similar suicide that occurred a couple of years prior in Sydney. So a man named... in Yeah, in 1945. So a man named George Marshall was found dead in Mossman in Sydney on the 3rd of June. He was found on a ledge overlooking the ocean and a copy of the Rubaiyat was open on his chest with a quatrain underlined that read, Ah, make the most of what we yet may spend before we too into the dust descend. Dust into dust and under dust to lie. Sans wine, sans song, sans singer and sans end. I'm not a huge fan of poetry. (laughs) 
I'm sure that is a very nice poem, and the guy obviously thought it was meaningful enough to commit suicide with. But it's not a banger, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so although Joe Thompson called the Rubaiyat like a book of love poems, it kind of wasn't. It was a it was a book of poems that was about, like, seizing the day and stuff like that, which you could take to be romantic if you were, like, seizing the opportunity to, like, spend some time with your lady love, I suppose. But it was also, like, a lot about death. So... It makes sense as a text that would possibly inspire you to commit suicide. Um, George Marshall was found with... Seize um, the moment, kill yourself. Seize the moment, kill yourself. Um, not a t-shirt quote. No, definitely not. Definitely not. So Marshall was found uh-uh. with a glass next to him with barbituric acid powder and some liquid in a lemonade bottle. Um, barbituric was, was one of the poisons that was floated early on in the Summerton Man case as a possible mm. poisoning. So it's possible that the Summerton Man had read about the suicide um, in the paper and was, like, inspired to copy it. Or it's possible that both the Summerton Man and George Marshall were spies and it's some kind of Rubaiyat-themed spy death code. <laughs> Which is a theory that is a a theory that is absurd, but really talked about a lot on the internet. People are like, well, obviously, you know, if you die with this quatrain of the Rubaiyat underlined, it sends this secret message to whoever. And the Summerton Man suicide was another secret message or whatever. So make of that what you will. I don't make very much of it. Um, (laughs) The other possible, the other possible suicide theory, which is possibly the real one. Um, makes more sense when you tie everything back to Joe Thompson. So, essentially, the theory goes that Joe and the Summerton Man met in Sydney in 1946 when Joe was working as a nursing student and the Summerton Man was like a GI or something like that. So they have a romantic encounter. The Summerton Man goes off to war or wherever and Joe falls pregnant out of wedlock. So she's forced to go back to Melbourne to stay with Problematic. Very problematic for the 40s. Um, she's forced to go back to stay with her family for a time, and there she runs back into her old pal, Prosper Thompson. They undergo this marriage of convenience to cover up Joe's out-of-wedlock pregnancy. Um, she changes her name to make it seem like they're married. They move to Adelaide. Um, maybe Joe wrote the Summerton Man a letter or something like that, telling him about the baby. Maybe she didn't. Maybe he found about it. About, out about it some other way but regardless um on november the 30th 1948 he comes back to adelaide to see joe and the baby possibly after being massively in love with her this whole time who knows comes to see joe either they have an argument or he sees that she's you know got a life with another man or maybe she says that she never loved him or something dramatic like that he leaves takes the book of love poems that he's given that she had given him which was obviously her move um you know, tore a piece of paper out of the end, threw it in a car while he was walking by and goes to the foreshore to commit suicide, basically. Mm. Um, there is a third... That seems the most logical. It seems the most logical. There is a... There's the third um, possible cause of death, which was an accidental death. So Derek Abbott was... I don't know if he was the first person, but he's definitely been the largest proponent of the fact that the Summerton man could have died from positional asphyxia so the way he was lying down like his his neck and head were up against the wall as I said but his whole body was lying down and if he was like sick or even drugged or incapacitated in some way it's possible that the way that he was lying down stopped like cut off his circulation and caused him to suffocate so if he was sick um he maybe didn't have the strength to get himself up he possibly could have fallen unconscious and then his heart just stopped from the lack of circulation that is probably I think the most likely cause of death because Mm. um if he was unwell with some mystery illness all of the things that showed up in the autopsy as possible signs of poisoning could also be like you know he had an enlarged liver and stuff like that he could have had some liver disease that they weren't able to detect or maybe because they assumed it was a suicidal murder things that things that could have led towards a natural cause of death were overlooked possibly and that he just you know maybe he was maybe he did know maybe he the same story with joe thompson did happen it seems pretty likely that he was robin thompson's father Um, so possibly all that happened and he just went on the beach to, like, feel his feelings for a while and accidentally died. I mean, it happens all the time. Happens every day. You just, 
before when I was sitting here, my cupboard door suddenly opened and hit me a little bit in the head. And I was like, if that hit me any stronger, I would have died. And it would have been the most yeah. embarrassing, like, lame way to die. Sometimes people do just lie down and die. It's not a very, like, sexy, like, ooh, he was a spy explanation. But it seems to be the most likely. There was really not anything that I believe is evidence of poisoning. People are bored, so they try and look for more things, more things. than there actually are. Yeah. Because they, they can't just, oh. Uh, because yeah. it, it's e- it, 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 might, it might be easier to rationalise than sometimes you can just sit down and die. You can, you can just lay like down and die, yeah. Your your body some will just for some people just give out on you for mm-hmm. no apparent reason. Exactly, and something else that was it was I only read it a couple of times while I was researching, but I read it enough that I think it's important to mention is that you know this is Australia after World War Two. There are a lot of unknown people, a lot of you know people refugees or you know immigrants who would come after who'd had to change their names, you know Jewish refugees who have had to completely change their lives, leave their old lives behind, have no trace of who they were. Um, return servicemen... Have no choice to. Exactly. Return servicemen who were suffering from PTSD or something like that, that, you know, maybe didn't know who they were or there, there oh are God, reasons yeah. for him to be unknown other than the fact that he was a spy, which I don't think... I don't know if I've made it clear. I don't think he was a spy. Um, I think it's, you know... I think the easiest explanation is often the correct one. And I think it's easier just to assume that he was some man who was trying to cover his identity for some much more mundane reason than being some international super spy. Mm. So that's the Summerton Man. Wow. You big nerd. I'm so proud of you for doing it. Thank you. It was very interesting. I didn't know a lot of it, so I was like, I already know this. And then when I like actually read <laughs> about it more in depth, I was like, wow, I have been very misinformed for a long time. And after, there's a lot... There's so much false information online. And I'm sure I said things that were false because, you know, trying to collate 50 years of evidence and everybody's theories and working out what's true and what's not is very difficult in this case. Yeah. But super interesting. I don't think, you know, if he wasn't a spy or anything cool, I don't think it's any less important to find out who he was. Also, the fact that you have a personal connection to this is I know. Miss Rama. What a ledge. She was a good ballet teacher. Where was, was this in Brisbane? Yeah, I was in Brisbane. She lived in Brisbane for like ages. So neat. Neat. Good job, mate. Thanks. South Australia too. Done. Done in. Um, I have to figure out my next case. I know mine. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know mine. Well, I have to figure out my next case. Oh, that um, was quick. When, when we're... When we're dropping these episodes, I'm going to be in America yes. on my, um, what shall we call it? Jess's recovery therapy session. Yeah. Jess's recovery vacation. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a lot of confronting emotions, going to be a lot of sun, a lot of sweating. But it does Average temperature in Florida at the moment is 35 degrees. That's Kill fine. Me. We're, we're used to that. Um Humidity's at about ninety-eight percent. Um, <laughs> love that. Look, love that for me. Um, so I'll figure out my next case, and that will be the next episode, I guess. Yes, it will be. How exciting! Rad, 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 rad. Well, um, you can find us on Instagram at Murder in the Land of Oz. You can find us at Facebook on Facebook rather, at Murder in the Land of Oz. You can become a Patreon for our Patreon-only content. We're about to record some Patreon content for your ears to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, we do some, like, get-to-know-you episodes where you can find out a little bit more about me and Ellen if we don't already reveal too much about ourselves on this podcast. Far too much. Um, you can also head to Tea Public and get your Murder in the Land of Oz merch. We've got some new stunning Mitlu catchphrases up there, including... What a bunch of noodles. Sorry, I'm busy. Uh, ghost research is not exactly peer-reviewed. And my – what was the one, Zane? Someone bought, like, a heap of the Jim Jones communist monkey stuff. Someone bought, like, a shit ton. It was Jim Jones. Of those quotes. It wasn't me. It was Jim Jones. Zane, four things from phone case, a satchel, 
And like a sticker or something you were telling me. That's wild. Um, so, yeah, you can head on there. Botany solves crime. If you were the person you know. who bought a ton of Jim Jones merchandise, can you send can us you an send email? send us a photo? Can you just let us know I who you know. are and how frightened yeah, we should be? Just, um, yeah, just let us know you're all right. We're um, concerned stunning. for you. So your family's concerned. We'll see you uh, next episode. We'll see you in a fortnight. See you in a fortnight. Okay. Bye. Goodbye. So, what should I listen to now? We are Castology. This is our podcast about podcasts. We are your castologists, Patrick Shearer, Liz Best, and Zainty Weber. Each week, we'll bring you three of the best and sometimes not so best podcasts around. We'll also do the hard work and trawl the RSS feeds to find the newest podcast that should be on your radar. And then next week, we come back and tell you what we thought of the recommendations and bring three new sparkling podcasts to check out. Now, will we always agree with each other's picks? Probably not. But hey, you're clever. You know that's how reviews work. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcatcher of your choice. That's Not Kind of Productions podcast. Now that we're getting back on the road, the stops we make seem more special than before. Stop to see a friend. Stop at your favorite store. Stop at the places you missed most. And to keep you going between those stops, there's Shell. Stopping to fill up with our best fuel ever. Save with the Fuel Rewards program. And to get snacks and essentials that can save you even more at the pump. That's just a few of the ways Shell helps you make the most of the stop you need to make. See full terms and conditions at FuelRewards.com. Get ready to watch more of what you love with Xfinity X1, like live sports and more with the Xfinity Sports Zone. Looking for more streaming apps? They're all in one place. Xfinity X1 is the ultimate entertainment experience. Click, call, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas.